Bad Faith podcast. I have heard your pleas, and I am very happy to announce that today I'm joined by Vijay Prashad, an Indian historian, scholar, and journalist. He's a writing fellow and chief correspondent at Globetrotter. He's an editor at Left Word Books and the director of Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. He's written more than 20 books, including The Darker Nations and The Poorer Nations, and his latest books are Struggle Makes Us Human, Learning from Movements for Socialism, and with Noam Chomsky, The Withdrawal, Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan, and the Fragility of U.S. Power. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. It's a pleasure, honestly. I was really very honored to hear from you on Twitter of all places. <laughs> and and then to be with you is, is really a pleasure for me. Thanks a lot. Well, I, I'm really not overstating things when I say, you know, when I ask the audience for recommendations about who they'd like to hear from, your name comes up every time and it's at the top of my list and has been at the top of my list for a while. So I'm so glad you're able to join. Let's get right into it. One of the things I love about you and listening to your lectures is that you are someone who emphasizes the importance of organizing and sometimes is kind of critical of this idea of spontaneity, that we can rely on movements emerging out of the midst without having the foundation of them. At the same time that you say, hey, I'm not in it for the struggle. I want there to be results. And sometimes I, people who listen to this podcast will know that I, it's become a little bit of a joke that you know, saying organize is a little bit of a trigger for me because I think a lot of people bring it up as a way to almost derail a more specific conversation about what, about what needs to be done. So people will enumerate the problems of the world and then the response will be, well, you got to organize. But at the same time, if you say, well, should we organize in unions? They'll say, oh, well, union density is low and you're not going to get anything out of that for decades. Okay. Well, should we, um, plus, you know, they'll say labor unions are captured and da, 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 da. Okay. Well, should we have a general strike? Well, we're not organized enough to have a general strike. And what it feels like, and sometimes it's almost like a perfect script to derail movement energy that comes out of these moments like the George Floyd protest or people's frustration about Biden and a lack of environmental, uh, commitment to environmental reforms and things like that. So how do you reconcile the fact that we seem to not be where we need to be with respect to organizing, the need for organizing, and the fact that you are not in it for the struggle, you fully expect there to be the revolution, as it were, within your lifetime. Well, uh, look, firstly, it is it is true historically. When you go back and look at the great advances that have taken place, the advances didn't come because somebody in power decided, well, you know, hey, listen, we were wrong all those centuries or decades or whatever, and now we've seen the light and we're going to say let's let let women be uh, liberated or or let's end racism you know people sitting at the top of the tree very rarely decide to suddenly wake up one day and say i've seen the light from god or or seen the light from from you know morality in general it doesn't work like that we know that historically historically um, people have had to struggle very hard to establish the right to be human uh, the right for us to live as human beings. Uh, and I think that historical lesson should never be lost. You know, there's a bumper sticker I once saw um, years ago. It used to be pretty common on lefty, the back of lefty cars. And it said something like, you know, thank the labor movement for the weekend. Uh, mm. Nice pithy formulation of something real. Like it took a lot of struggle by people, many of whom died or lost their jobs, you know, um, in order to establish the right to have leisure, just basic leisure, you know, have a day off or to have the working day end at a certain time, to have a break for lunch, you know, 
I have family members who work in the in the in the call center industry. Um, if they need to go to the bathroom, they have to actually log out from their computer to go to the bathroom, then come back in and log in. You know, the battle over time is fierce. And it was the labor movement, the strength of people's commitment to making the world better that really won these freedoms for people, this leisure, you know. Look, people in the United States, are, I know, are in despair over the Supreme Court verdict on on abortion rights. Well, you know, before 1973 and subsequent to 1973, lots of people, mostly women, fought extraordinarily hard to establish the right to have reproductive health care. It's just a normal thing in, in a civilized society. I mean, this, there should be no debate about abortion. You know, it's a basic health care issue. It's not an issue of, you know, masculinity being challenged or patriarchy. It's a basic health care issue. It's like going to have the right to see a dentist or having, you know, eyeglass care or something like that. Yeah. So the first thing is just Which to... Which we recognize. also don't have. <laughs> well, 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 okay. Unfortunately. Yes, okay, yeah. there's also that. Um, so, you know, one is we know that history requires you to fight. That's the great Frederick Douglass line. You know, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did and it never will. Okay, we learned that. We also learned that as a consequence of... You know, this decades of austerity, neoliberalism, austerity, whatever you want to call it, you know, essentially governments allowing corporations to do whatever they want and so on. As a consequence of decades of austerity, people have lost leisure time. They've lost their energy. They've lost their ability to organize effectively and so on. And it's a, so we're hit from two sides. On the one hand, you know, you have to organize. On the other, you know that the social fabric doesn't exist anymore. I mean, Rihanna, I would go so far as to say in many countries, in the United States, I think, um, as much as anywhere, society has disappeared. You know, the basic ability for people to gather with their neighbors, there's just no time. You know, you come back from a harrowing day at work, long commute to get back home. Your children are flustered and busy with their anxiety over college admissions or just getting through high school or whatever it might be. You don't really have time to even eat as a family. Forget, you know, mm. then go to a meeting to talk about union issues or talk about neighborhood issues and things. Our time has been stolen for, from us. And, and so, you know, we're trying to fight not just to establish rights, you know, which is what, for instance, Black Lives Matter put on the table, rights mm. to being considered a human. But we have to fight to create a society. You don't have that. You know, I see studies where people say, you know, one in three or two in three people in the United States have forgotten the number, believe that, you know, they need to be armed. Uh, why? Because armed confrontation is is literally in front of your door. That's terrifying. That means you don't live in a society anymore. You know, you live essentially with a group of families that happen to share the same space, but not a society. You're scared of each other. That's terrifying. So when we say you've got to organize to win, organize what? First thing you might want to consider is to organize a damn society. You don't have that. So what does that look like? Because I've heard you say, you know, you need to have, people need to cultivate a, a revolutionary personality. But even a revolutionary personality within a society that is, perhaps non-existent, right? It seems like that's even double the work or it, it triple the work, quadruple the work, exponent, exponent the work, you know? It seems to me, and, and sometimes I feel this way, and I think the people who tune into this show feel this way, that 
you know, podcasts, political campaigns like the Bernie campaign, they can start to cultivate revolutionary personalities. But if the revolutionary personalities cannot plug into something as part of the broader network, and this is where the frustration about organizing comes in. People are always asking me, I see them talking in, you know, on the internet in chats. I see them calling in and talking to each other in the context of my call-in show. They're begging for an opportunity to plug in. People have heard that I joined Socialist Alternative and they're like, okay, I'll try that. They're, they're begging for a community, but without, you know, the org being set up in most cities, there's not even a Socialist Alternative branch in DC with the constraints on time, people's time being what they are especially for people who are lower income, who are more invested in there being substantive change, it does feel a little bit like folks are on a hamster wheel. And they're also becoming increasingly radicalized, I think, because of that fact. And they're willing to do increasingly radical things that are outside of the law. So, I mean, what do you see as the path? You have this optimism that you can still see, despite all of that revolution, you know, some kind of resolution of this in your lifetime. What, what, what kind of path are you envisioning there? Well, look, you know, uh, we're talking, you know, around issues that are very serious issues. And, and we have to recognize that in places where social life is far more difficult than in the United States, um, people have, despite all the challenges of organizing, uh, taken great risks to build immense power. Uh, take the case of the Indian farmers, you know, um, can't think of a more difficult life situation where we have recorded evidence, Brianna, of about half a million Indian farmers since 1993 having committed suicide. Half a million Indian farmers drank pesticide and so on because they just couldn't make debt payments. They couldn't, they didn't want to lose their family farms. And, and by the way, this is something that was seen in the United States in the 1980s. Um, the reason why farm aid was set up by Willie Nelson and others was because farmers in states like Iowa, it started to commit suicide. Suicide rates started to go up as family farmers lost their farms to the banks and the big farming companies. So this occurs, you know, in India, just as it has occurred in the United States. And the farmers decided against all odds uh, to just get on their tractors or walk hundreds of, 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 um, of miles, you know, to the city of Delhi to the outskirts of the capital. And for a year, they just sat in the outskirts saying, we're not going to move. I mean, talk about Occupy Delhi. You know, they just didn't move. The state used armed violence against them, tried to call them all kinds of names, you know, um, agents of China, foreign agents and so on. But the farmers just decided this is an existential question. We just can't move. <coughs> Excuse me. You know, the farmers decided we just can't move. And I want to say that, you know, for people who think that this is not possible, something like this is not possible in the United States. Well, then you didn't look exactly carefully at what was happening with the death of people like George Floyd, you know, with each of these, um, you know, killings on the streets of, of the United States. There were black families saying, look, we can't. This is an existential question. <coughs> We can't just allow this to go on. Our children's lives are at stake. This is not a question of establishing the law. It's not a question of, you know, the U.S. Constitution must be respected, police departments. It's not a question of, it's a question of life and death. It's an existential question. That's what the farmers were saying. And I think that's what people in the black and brown communities in places like the United States and in the United Kingdom and so on, 
That's what people say. That's when you start seeing spontaneous acts of um, of essentially resistance, you know, really spontaneous acts. But spontaneous acts require a backbone. Uh, that's what I mean by organizing. You know, you don't organize everybody in the world. You don't organize all the masses. But you have to organize the backbone in order when spontaneous things happen, they require some shape. They require form. And it's that backbone that provides the shape and form. So what I think makes people desperate is the feeling, oh, my God, how am I going to organize a million people? You don't need to organize a million people. You need to organize 500 people who are prepared when 2,000 people come out on the street saying, we can't live like this anymore. You have to provide some shape for what's happening. You know, that's how politics has always worked. Small groups of trade unionists have worked diligently in dry patches for years on end, meeting small groups of workers in factories and so on. And then there's a breakthrough. There's a big strike. There's a sense of, from the workers, we can't take this any longer. In fact, that's what's hap been happening in the last decade or so. We've seen lots of massive spontaneous uprisings take place. Most recently in Sri Lanka, where mm -hmm. government was overthrown, massive popular uprising. But there's nobody really to give it any shape. There's no sense of what comes tomorrow, friends. You know, you, you, you take power. What happens tomorrow? Do you have to come into office tomorrow and immediately compromise with reality because you don't have any ideas worked out previously? That's the real issue. That's what we mean by organizing, creating. Well, the, dedic yeah. 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 Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, it's considered the American left. I think at this point, we look at Sri Lanka and we're envious with hearts in our eyes, even if what happens tomorrow is still an open question. The idea that we could ever get that far feels anathema. Some of us on the left even look at the the one six protests and say, gosh, I wish there was a left version of that that obviously had very different motives and ideals and perhaps manifested itself in a different way. But that kind of energy, that kind of commitment to something that was people's willingness to do a kind of significant civil disobedience, it almost feels enviable. The truckers protest. But it does feel like, to the extent that there was that sort of energy around George Floyd, that the problem wasn't just that there wasn't a what's the next step. Because I think there were some people below the senior level of Black Lives Matter national org leadership that were very specific, that had demands that were linked to uh, electoral outcomes. You know, I will vote for you if. And the ifs included many things that were part of kind of the Bernie agenda that were tangential to but related to the issues uh, that George Floyd was, you know, that caused his death. So it wasn't just criminal justice reform. It was um, Medicare for all and understanding that George Floyd's autopsy revealed that he had, you know, COVID in his in his bloodstream, all of these other kinds of things that are intersecting and infecting communities. But those were not the voices that were heard. Those were not the voices that were raised to the top. We've now all heard a great deal about the financial mismanagement of the Black Lives Matter National Group, but almost worse than that, it seems to me, is the way that all of that energy was derailed into people doing hype houses for justice and poetry readings for justice and kind of commodifying for social media what it meant to be a movement actor in a way that was very attenuated from the demands of the community. And I don't know if those are the same kind of issues that the Indian farmers faced or people in Sri Lanka are facing right now, but I'm curious what examples you can point to of how to guard against what seems to me a very efficient 
um, neoliberal uh, ability to co-opt movements in the United States. See, the United States has also got a particular problem, which is the great um, the great gap between the middle class and the working people. There's an enormous cultural gap and the organizations of working people has simply have let them down completely. Um, that is to say, on the one side, you know, um, I'll come back to unions in a minute because I think there's something specific to say about them. Look, there's nothing wrong with middle class people trying to get into the struggle and doing poetry readings for justice. The more we talk about justice, the better. The problem is that they then um, masquerade uh, as the leaders of the movement. Um, they take on the mantle. They begin to represent the masses uh, without acknowledging or having any form of accountability to mass protest. Um, this is a big problem, and that's a problem that happens in a society uh, where organization culture simply has been attenuated, destroyed, really, by McCarthyism. Um, you know, you're a college professor. You can believe that you're a leader of a political movement, you know, and, and you can speak for the political movement. But what's the channels of accountability? You know, how are you accountable to people? What are the forms in which um, your accountability can be can be tested, as it were? Uh, that simply doesn't exist. So, I mean, and I also want to say that I feel that some of the accusations of mismanagement of money and so on that's the great danger of 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 a kind of state disinformation that takes place no question that things happen that are bad and so on but why is that the main story you know why is it so much worse that somebody um mismanaged money in the black lives matter movement when you've got corporations making money on black lives matter by walking around saying you know look we have decided now to have a black CEO. And so we're going to chemically, we're going to destroy, put toxins into the earth, but don't challenge us. We have a black CEO or the Pentagon showing ads for, um, we have an in, entire helicopter battalion, which is gay. You know, um, now they're going to have a black general lead AFRICOM. Um, you know, that's mismanagement of the justice agenda much more than, you know, some people with no experience really who didn't really understand what to do with money. Fine, I, I don't think what they did was good. I think it's terrible. But why is this so much uh, illuminations, bright spotlight on them? You know, front page of magazine articles and, and like exposés and so on. Meanwhile, it's perfectly okay for the Pentagon to mobilize um, the justice agenda to go and bomb people around the world. You know, we should be focusing on that as well. There's a way in the United States where information campaigns take place and then people within the movement start focusing on this stuff which is a which is a traction you know oh my god what did they do they bought a house they did this that's not the don't focus on that guys that's a problem it needs to be dealt with but that's not the problem what that leads to is in the sense that look i don't want to get involved again because it always ends badly you know there's a kind of I don't like to use this word, but there's a kind of anarchistic sentiment that sets in, says that, oh, all power is bad. Let's not build an organization. It's always going to be corrupted. Well, then there's no appetite to try anything again. You know, there's a way in the United States where the left eats itself on these issues, doesn't see that it's actually a bigger enemy and forming um, united blocks uh, against the bigger enemy has got to be a motivation. Look at the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America's International Committee. 
attacked on questions of what Venezuela, Cuba, you know, Ukraine. Half the time, and I, and I and I'm serious about what I'm going to say right now. Half the time, I believe this is you know intelligence-driven disinformation campaigns to tear the left apart. It's a little bit what the what the government did, the FBI did to the Socialist Workers Party in the 1970, where something like 80% of the SWP was government informants. I, I don't know if you 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 know this yeah, figure. Well, <laughs> well, let me let me ask you the, this then: yeah. What is the difference between accountability? And the left eating itself, because there's a world where, for example, if Patrice Cullors, who was one of the Black Lives Matter leaders who was considered to have been had a hand in this mismanagement, who purchased the house. If she were to say, come on left media, instead of sitting down with kind of establishment black media the way that people do, you know, you have your talk with Essence or whatever it is, if they were willing to come to what I, th- I consider to be real lefty media and have an honest accounting about what not, what happened and not just have these softball questions. I am completely open to the idea of all kinds of levels of forgiveness to the extent that certain parts of the left have been very critical for a long time of squad members, whether it's because of the failure to force the vote over Nancy Pelosi's speakership whether it was because they didn't hold the line over a $15 minimum wage or the bifurcation of the um, Build Back Better bill, whether it's because they voted for any number, you know, the Iron Dome or to increase funding to uh, the Capitol Police, whatever thing it was that tipped you over into being very frustrated with the squad. There's now a lot of people on the left who are frustrated with the squad. There are other people on the left who say this is divisive. This isn't helpful. They're the best that we've got. Leave them alone. I'm someplace in the middle. I, they had to really earn my frustration, right? It took, you know, I was willing to give a lot of benefit of the doubt. When AOC said, okay, we're not going to force a vote over Nancy Pelosi because we're going to hold the line over $15 minimum wage. I waited to see if she actually held the line over $15 minimum wage before I fully articulated my frustration with her. And I don't mean it's just her. It's all of them. I think that she attracts an unfair amount of uh, criticism for what a lot of them, if not all of them are doing. But at a certain point, they have to be held accountable. And again, if they would come on lefty media, which only um, Rokana seems willing to do, if they would give an explanation for their behavior, maybe it would be an acceptable explanation that we would understand. Maybe they really are making deals and getting concessions and making advances that are just outside of the purview of the public. You know, maybe they could just apologize and say, I had more confidence in the Democratic caucus than I should have. I've learned my lesson and now I want to partner with movement energy and use lefty media as a tool to try to get better outcomes going forward. I think a lot of us would accept that. But what I think becomes a problem is that the accountability stops at us complaining. There's no real response from the interlocutor, like the the, the power holder, whether they're a union leader or a representative or a grassroots leader like Patrice, Patrice Cullors. And so the animus just builds and there's no outlet vault. And so that does start to feel like it, the left is eating itself. But I don't know that I would place the blame at the people who are making legitimate criticisms of people at the top of the, the lefty totem, you know, the lefty hierarchy that are messing up. No, I, I very much like what you said. And I, I like you, I'm also in the middle and got into Twitter things with people uh, who say, well, you're too soft on X, Y, Z. Well, look, here's the thing is firstly, let's quite clear. The people who get elected to US, the U.S. Congress are stuck with two penalties. Penalty number one, 
despite the fact that they might be members of the DSA or whatever, uh, they are not trained political people in, in the mm-hmm. sense that they are not trained in political organizations where they feel a sense of, of accountability to the organization or to a political line or anything. They they claim sometimes to be accountable to their voters. That's the structure of the U.S. political system. So, in fact, you know, AOC is only accountable to her district who could in the next election uh, vote her out. She's not accountable to the left in any way. Uh, mm-hmm. Because, in fact, there is no structure of accountability. You know, accountability, I agree with you. Uh, a short-term thing would be, let's go on lefty media, let's talk about it. But that's not a structure of political accountability. It's merely, you know, uh, trying to engage with the left through its media, which I, I exactly take your point, And I don't understand why they don't do that, because that's a very low, um, you know, uh, uh, handout. It's not difficult to do. Spend an afternoon, spend an hour with you, talking about some of these issues and so on. So, but I, I still don't buy think, it. <laughs> yeah, you don't buy it. I, I, I get that. And, and by the way, wonderful setup behind you with the flowers and the, and the, and the potted plant and so on. So better than mine in a way, right? But the point is that, you know, one, the one penalty that, that they have is that they, they're not a political structure of accountability uh, with mass organizations and so on. That's the first thing. Um, in fact, along that line, most politicians in the United States do have structure of accountability, organizational accountability, and that's to their donors, that's to the big corporations. Those are structures of accountability. They have to answer to them. If if one of them makes a vote that makes a steel lobby upset, the steel lobby is going to reach out to them. You know, whereas the you and me lobby doesn't have a way of reaching AOC. Like I don't know how to reach AOC. You know, I, I've published a lot of books. I've been very much in the public domain. I have never ever met her, don't have any clue how to meet her, don't have any clue how to send her a message saying, listen, why are you saying this about X, Y, Z? I have no clue because you and me lobby doesn't exist. The corporate lobbies exist and they actually have structures of accountability. Let's face it. Politicians are accountable to them. So the squad self-designated, some of them members of the DSA, I don't know whether they're accountable to the DSA at all. You know, what are the structures? I don't think there are any. I think That's it's quite one... the opposite, actually. I think that's some, something that we learned in the course of the force of vote fight, which I don't know if you were following at all, but I think people say is responsible for a division among the left, but I think just really exposed a, a, a break in the different attitudes of how adversarial some parts of the left are willing to be and some, and how, how much, how non-adversarial other parts are. But, you know, it, I, I I feel as though during that moment, there was very little from the organizations in terms of uh, taking polls or assessing what their constituents actually wanted the squad members to do. And in fact, a lot of what we heard, what we found out was that it was very top down. It was the leadership in DSA, leadership in the nurses union, whatever, saying we're not going to get involved because they had direct relationships with AOC and the rest of the squad. And they were like, we're not doing this. And that's well, the opposite of how things should be happening. So this brings us to the second penalty that's faced by somebody like AOC, you know, young person with, as far as I know, very little political experience prior to entering, um, you know, electoral politics and so on. Anyway, the second great penalty, in my opinion, is that you enter into these, these structures of political uh, life, you know, uh, elected political life. And there are rigid 
political formations that lean on you and make it impossible for you to strike out on your own. Now, I don't know um, the AOC world at all, but I do remember Dennis Kasunich talking about this on many occasions when Dennis Kasunich, you know, idiosyncratic politics. Let's be clear about that. You know, he had different ideas, interesting ideas and so on. I don't know who Dennis was accountable to either, you know, but that's that's penalty number one. Penalty number two is that if you step out of line with the, you know, the Democratic Party whips or their structures, you can be severely punished in this system. Uh, and I don't think that's 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 talked about enough that, in fact, these are disciplinary mechanisms. You know, there is no such thing as a Democratic Party. The Democratic Party doesn't really have branches of members around the United States and so on. There are maybe a town council, but that's a platform to um, nominate candidates for city councils and so on. It doesn't have a mass party structure, you know, um, like the Labour Party in the UK, for instance, where party members meet on a regular basis and so on. So in that sense, um, the disciplinary structure of the Democratic Party is really held within Washington, D.C., within the party leadership, just as it is with the Republican Party. That's a huge penalty for people, young people, particularly of the left, to get elected, you come into this world and you're quickly told, hey, listen, you got to stay in line. Otherwise, we'll punish you. You know, not only will you have the worst office in the building and so on, you'll never see anybody. We won't allow you to move an agenda, which means you're not getting reelected. There's a way in which this punishment is super anti-democratic. And it should, you know, again and again and again, I know Ralph Nader has talked about this for years, but it should give us pause to think again about, you know, is it worthwhile uh, pursuing the two-party objective? If you're going to pursue the two-party objective, uh, is there a strategy? You know, not merely just committing to the two-party because there's no choice. Is there a strategy? You know, what happens when you win? What's the next day? You know, okay, you constitute yourself as a squad, but what is that? That was a PR exercise. It's not even a voting block, right? So this this is where a lot of our our listeners are right now. They are all but completely over electoralism, generally speaking, but specifically, many of them say, I will never vote for a Democrat again. There are some exceptions where there are candidates who have come on the show who made explicit commitments to be openly adversarial to the Democratic Party, to promise to do a dirty break at some point, to say that they would never vote for Nancy Pelosi to be Speaker of the House, who've made some affirmations that make folks comfortable supporting them. But on the whole, most people are in a, I, it's Green Party, Forward Party, try to take over the Libertarian Party. Like Those are the kind of conversations people are having, at least with this audience. I think more broadly, people who feel this way are plan to sit it out. And I think you see increasing numbers of, of um, voter d- disaffectation, which is not read politically on a national level, at least, as people having frustrations with the Democratic Party. It's being it's it's framed by the mainstream media as people are lazy. People are racist. People don't care about the threat of Trump or DeSantis, whoever the next villain is that are, that's coming down the pike. And that, too, I think, has the effect of squashing the political potential of those people and re- making those people realize they are part of something that could start to look like a movement. So that being said, what's to be done? And as someone who is open to the idea that progress can be made on the short term of our lifetimes, you know, what do you think, do, do you think about ways to maximize the political potential of, let's say, midterm elections or let's say the 
current economic crisis or the COVID crisis or this wave of strikes that are happening or, or union uh, unionizing um, of workplaces that's happening with respect to Starbucks and Amazon and the energy around that. I mean, what's what's most exciting to you right now on the U.S. front? Well, look, frankly, it's very hard to answer a question like that. Imagine the question. Imagine what you just asked me. What's most exciting on the U.S. front? Wow. Uh, not much, I must say. You know, uh, I'm speaking to you from Santiago in Chile, in Chile mm-hmm. and in Argentina. Um, you know, these deeply Catholic countries decided that women's right to choose is far more important than, you know, the Catholic tradition and so on. Meanwhile, it's the United States, which um, 200 years of the Monroe Doctrine telling people what to do uh, has decided to reverse not the right to abortion, by the way, but merely a court case that allowed doctors to provide abortion. Actually, it's not correct to say that in the U.S. from 73, there was a right to abortion. That would be something that the legislator would have to provide, you know, a right, a bill that said we, we have a right to abortion. No, it was merely the court saying that you can't prevent a, a healthcare provider from providing abortion and blah, you know, etc. So we're talking, when you say what's exciting in the United States, very hard to say that these are tough times for people building power, you know, for mass struggles and so on. On the other hand, you're right. Young people, um, a rainbow of young people, if you don't mind me using a 1980s phrase, a rainbow of young people building trade unions, you know, against Amazon, against Starbucks and so on. This is exciting. Uh, Why? Not because they're building small unions. After all, these are small unions. I don't know how much they'll be able to accumulate power. But it reveals immediately there is an entire generation of people that are just not ready to, you know, um, put on the straight jacket and say, I'm not interested. I'm going to sit it out or whatever it is. They want to build power. The question with building power is not about getting stuck around the debate with elections. Um, elections are merely one tactical front to build power. You've got to build power wherever you can. I mean, if you go back, and read the playbook. <coughs> Sorry. If you go back and read the playbook of the right wing, you know, from the time of the 1970s, they were quite clear. Run candidates in your city councils, run candidates everywhere, um, you know, change the way in which laws are, are, are going to be written or districts are going to be created for Congress and so on. This started from the bottom up. And it would be incredible to see the same rainbow energy That's entering into Starbucks and saying we're going to unionize, entering into Amazon, we're going to unionize. Let them do two things. I'm just putting two things on the table. And this is coming to the tactical front of elections. Number one, go to every safe democratic seat and run a candidate who's unapologetically from the left. Run revolutionary candidates, you know, um, in, in places like Berkeley, California, you're never going to vote a Republican into office there. Put somebody in from the left. You know, Barbara Lee, Barbara, you did a great job in 2001 voting against the the war in Afghanistan. But basically, your record has been shit since then. Run somebody to her left. Challenge people on the left in safe democratic seats. That's exactly what the right does. In right-wing seats, they put nutcases from the right. We are not nutcases. We basically want to establish humanity in the world. That's one. But the second thing is in areas where you don't feel so confident, run candidates into city councils, onto school boards, onto every single opportunity. 
don't allow those opportunities to go un, uh, untaken. You know, I would like to see coalitions emerge. Forget socialist alternative, PSL, code pink, doesn't matter what you belong to. Come together, get behind a reasonable candidate, create some sort of common minimum program. If I get elected to the school board, I commit to doing the 10, these 10 things. Create a common program that they are accountable to. How do you establish the accountability of a candidate? Have them sign an account to, to follow at least 10 things that they're not going to back down from. If they back down from that, go out in public and say, this is, what have you done? You, you have violated the minimal 10 things we've asked you to do. There, so, there's so, a million other, yeah, go ahead. So here's, here's the immediate, I don't mean to be a negative Nancy, but here's my immediate problem that I anticipate with that. One, the idea that you could, again, this accountability issue, if someone were to break a promise, if someone that we managed to get elected through the kind of coming together of the left, which is its own problem, but they were able to do that. The idea that there is a consistent left media infrastructure that would hold them accountable, certainly no mainstream media structure is going to do it because they think that they're crazy for even wanting to do any of those lefty things. But look at what just happened in California, where we have an overwhelmingly Democratic state legislature. You have everybody top down from neoliberal Gavin, Gavin Newsom to people who I think are genuinely left, like Ash Kalra, who was leading the charge for a statewide Medicare for all um, bill, crumble when it was actually time to vote. And Ash, I want to give him credit, came on the show and gave his explanation for why he ultimately didn't bring the bill to a vote. But many of us who have been through the fires of force to vote feel very strongly that if you think that there are people in an overwhelmingly left state like California who ultimately would not vote for this bill, we need to know who they are and people need to have it on the record. Um, and now you have Gavin Newsom, who's trying to like coast on this idea that he actually supports Medicare for all up into the White House. And who is going to hold Gavin Newsom accountable? Who's going to even hold Ashkara accountable. Moreover, even getting to the place where the left as a whole, that small and marginalized as we are, can get behind candidates, I haven't really seen it happen outside of Bernie. You had someone like um, Shahid Buttar running against Nancy Pelosi in exactly the kind of district that you described that is a lefty district that should have the appetite for this sort of thing. And Nancy Pelosi launches a Me Too campaign against him the same way that was done against the young mayor in what was it? Uh, Boston, Massachusetts somewhere um, that was also tinged with a uh, kind of like a gay panic kind of a thing in that uh, one. Th- and, that was th- I remember that that was in 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 Holyoke. Um, and, yeah, I'm just I'm blocking yeah. his name. No, no. Yeah. yeah. Me, but, but then this happens. Right. And then half the left afraid, but understandably of backing a Me Too candidate or what have you, throws those candidates under the bus and people seem not to be able to gel behind them. So it, it does seem to be, I don't mean to say that like left media is the be all end all and it's all about optics and it's all about, but I do see that a lot of the problems come back down to a divided left, a divided left media infrastructure and a lot, in addition to a lack of some concrete organizational capacity that can pri- provide support to these kinds of candidates in these efforts. Well, look, I'm not going to disagree with you that this is a really tough road, which is why I said that the election thing is merely one tactic. And, and mm. my God, the dirty tricks uh, that people use are extraordinary. I mean, 
I, I don't know anything about the person that Nancy Pelosi uh, went after saying, you know, there was a Me Too story. I don't know anything about them. And I would never justify a Me Too um, case. But, you know, the way in which they are able to find things uh, on you and, and just destroy you, it's extraordinary. I mean, look, I, I'm come, I'm on your show now. I'm not a perfect person. You know, there's a lot of crap that's there about me. The, right now, um, you know, a man, British journalist, writes to a British intelligence uh, you know, things saying that I'm a Chinese agent and so on. And this is becoming a big thing on social media that, you know, this guy is basically funded. He's a Chinese agent. It's 90% nonsense, but it sticks, you know, and it has an impact on you. Um, it has also a personal impact on you as a human being. You know, nobody wants to always have to fight against a dirty kind of, uh, of, of bunch of, you know, innuendo and slur and all that. Fortunately for me, I'm too old for this to truly bother me that much. And, and, and I know where it's coming from. I, I, for God's sake, I wrote a book on on the way the CIA operates to delegitimize people. So I know where this stuff comes from. But it is disheartening. Elections are merely one tactical front. You've got to build power in communities. And for that, I think that's where the left needs to come together. You know, having these debates between anarchists and communists and this and that, it's a big bag. You know, right now, for instance, the, the leading issue that all the left globally needs to unite around is ending hunger. That's a leading issue. You know, why is it that in, in district upon district around the world, not just in the United States, the left hasn't come together to create public actions and so on. Example from Kerala, state of 35 million people in India, right when the pandemic started, left-wing women's organizations, mass organizations of youth, Trade unions all came together, set up public kitchens, started feeding people. You know what happened? It was quite interesting. In the city of Trivandrum, which is the capital of, of, of Kerala, um, young people went door to door. They, they didn't ask the state. Nobody told them to do this. Their mass organization of youth uh, said, we're going to go door to door to ask people, what do you need? They went with, you know, with with clipboards basically took people's names down. Do you need us to go and buy medicine for you? What mm. kind of things on a, they, they did something human, you know, mm. out of that practice. Um, I think her, she's 27 years old, I think, or maybe a little younger. Arya Rajendran, one of the young women with the clipboard, uh, was elected the mayor of Trivandrum, the capital of the state of Kerala in India. And, you know, the reason she was elected was she was identified as one of those young people with a checklist. And she's doing a terrific job as mm. the mayor of Kerala in her late 20s, a mayor mm. of Trivandrum in her late 20s. People have to do things. You know, one of the things that I very much talk about is that we've got to stop getting into fratricidal debates um, around issues that are really irrelevant to the survival of, of humanity and the planet. Um, what's an example you know, of one of those? What's an example of mm-hmm. those? Let, let's take the case of, of the Black Lives Matter. You know, that's a it's an important issue because, okay, even till now, I look at the data of police killings of people in cities. It's just too high. And we know so many of these stories about people, you know, there's often... So not often, but sometimes there is just vicious racist police killing of, of people. Okay, let's set that aside. But a number of people who are killed are also people who have mental health issues, who are struggling to deal with, 
you know, public space. They don't know how to deal with the shop. They walk into the shop, have a schizophrenic attack. Cop arrives, shoots them. You know, mm. there's a lot of that that happens. Well, during the Black Lives Matter movement, um, people put a demand on defund the police, which didn't mean shut down the police station. It meant put more money into mental health, put more money into this, into that. I mean, imagine if in cities in the United States, you know, uh, in Washington, D.C. as a good example, um, you know, 20 left wing um, you know, psychiatrists and psychologists came together and said, you know what, we're going to come out in public and we're going to tell the police department, we're going to volunteer to ride with you when you get a call mm-hmm. for these things, you know, uh, maybe a hundred psychiatrists, psychologists, nurses and others volunteer their time to ride with the cops at those witching hours, you know, when people, I mean, I know that there's a witching hour for people with mental health issues, you know, sometime in the late afternoon and so on. We're going to ride with you. I read a story which disturbed me so much. He, uh, uh, not a young man, middle-aged man was at a, at a bodega and he had walked in and taken the juice and he threw the stand down and somebody called the police. Well, the man was standing on a, on a wall with his soft drink in his hand, completely disoriented from the world. The shopkeeper came running out to the cops and said, look, don't do anything. I know him. He's, he's just having an episode, or whatever. He was shot to death. Um, mm. imagine there if people's organizations, if, if, if an organization called, you know, psychiatrists and psychologists for humanity start to say, we're going to ride with the police, challenge the police, you know, that itself is organizing that sets the tone, it gives people confidence. It proves that defund the police is actually not a idealistic or anti-police kind of view, you know, that there's actually something there. Social workers for human justice say we're going to ride with the cops. Those kind of gestures give people confidence that society can be recovered, that we don't have to live in the Wild West where everybody needs to be armed and ready to shoot and so on. It's this Wild West kind of attitude that has yeah. to be undermined. And it can only be undermined, not by saying no, no guns in society. You know, that's not enough. You've got to show people things. And these young people in Kerala, Arya Rajendran and others, showed that something is possible. We could go door to door, didn't need the government to do it. We just got some clipboards and went and helped people. In the same way, imagine if therapists and social workers did this. It would send such a strong message to people. You know, if a social worker can volunteer to do this, maybe we should put together a group to volunteer to do something else. You know, I'll give you an example. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Go out there and, and, and restart, but not from the state, not from police departments, but restart playing sports with children, you know, reclaim public land and say, we're going to create, you know, a, a basketball or major league or, or whatever, you know, play running races for young kids. Um, I was just in Cuba where one of the interesting things I learned from, from meeting the sports people there was they don't see sports as a way to make money. You know, Cuba, there's no professional sports. It's all amateur. Mm. He said to me, for us, everybody has to do some kind of sport. Because sports is about healthcare. It's about mental health. It's about going out there, playing in teams. You know, why is it that in countries like the United States, um, there's not the ability or the, the, the opportunity for every child, poorest child among, you know, the, to go out and play organized sports. You've got to have equipment. You've got to drive here, there. It's, it's become a middle class endeavor. You know, little league is a middle. So there's a way in which you can prove with your activity 
if more people on the left went out there and proved with activity that the world can be a better place, you lift people's confidence. You know, you can't just tell people that the world can be a better place. You've got to show them now, right now. We have a slogan in our institute. We always say the future will contain in it what you put in it now. You know, mm-hmm. the future doesn't just appear. You've got to do it now. Yeah, I think that you are pointing to what folks, I think folks have kind of gone to this place where there's an emphasis on mutual aid, for instance, because it does have that effect of creating some trust interpersonally that you actually just did something for me, that you were there for me, that you didn't ask me a bunch of questions. You just helped me with my needle exchange or you gave me a package of diapers and formula or whatever it was. And that there's an aspect of community building to that that is very useful. One of the lessons from the Bernie campaign was, you know, a choice to get on the ground in Nevada a year in advance and start throwing cookouts where kids did play soccer and, you know, people made, you know, like having like, you know, local food prepared at these kinds of places so that it didn't seem like the Bernie campaign was helicoptering in, you know, a month before the election and for the primary, just trying to get you to vote without really caring about who you are. And I do think that you're right that that's, part of the project it does strike me from as a as a privileged member of the petit bourgeois i i i hesitate before saying social workers as stretched as they are as underpaid as they are you know it relies on you know relying on people who are kind of already maxed out to carry the bulk of the weight of a lot of these projects even though that's already what's happening you know, it's already the case that a lot of the people that I see in my own left circle who are doing the mutual aid projects are the folks who them, themselves have the fewest resources. And it's not that I have a desire to have things come like top down, but I do have like a hesitation to say, like, am I really saying this is all on the people on the bottom? And on top of that, I wonder if the the bigger problem that the left has in America or that these movements have in America is that we perhaps we aren't. Not enough of us are doing badly enough yet. Well, this brings me back to the thing about unions, which I'd said I'd like to say a few things about. Please. I'm sorry I'm giving you all these examples from India. I don't mean to say India is a place of perfection. It has a wretched government. Situation is bad and so on. But about maybe 10 years ago, um, the Indian unions called for a general strike. It's important to recognize that there are only tens of millions of members of unions. In India, 93% of the workforce, 93% is in the informal sector. So only 7% is in the formal sector and unions by and large recruited in the formal sector. So that's important to know. And yet over the course of this past decade, the general strikes have attracted hundreds of millions of people. You know, we got the largest general strike two years ago uh, in, in probably in world history. Um, hundreds of millions of people out on strike. How did this happen? Well, here's an interesting thing that occurred. You see, I agree with you. Social workers, teachers in public schools stretched and often women. And once again, um, you know, blindly we say, well, women should do more, you know, blindly. The old gestures of patriarchy so easy to reproduce you Mm. know let's get social workers well majority women let's get teachers majority women and so on care work you know let's do more care work. nurses yeah yeah this is not what i'm saying at all but let's get unions interesting what the unions did they did two things which i thought were quite innovative the first thing they did was that the formal sector unions recognized that they were on a suicidal 
So they started to take up the issues of informal precarious workers. That was key. They began to lead on behalf of precarious workers, most of whom it turned out were women, like women who run, run creches or childcare centers for the government, women who are in public health and so on. They took up the issues and those women then unionized and became one of some of the more militant unions on the Indian scene. So why don't trade unions, you know, the steel workers unions, some of them are so wretchedly conservative, not in their politics, but in their attitudes, you know, the patriarchy, patriarchal attitudes of some of them so outdated. Um, why don't they take up the issues of the informal sector? Years ago, when the taxi workers of New York were organizing, I mm-hmm. happened to play a cutout role with the AFL-CIO. Uh, there was a woman, Marilee Milstein, who was number three at the AFL-CIO at the time. She unfortunately is not with us anymore. She called me up and we had this secret meeting at the, you know, at, at the train station, um, at Penn Station, at a cafe there with the leaders of the Taxi Workers Alliance. I mean, what's the, just meet with them openly. No, they met secretly because they had some small unions that no longer functioned in the taxi, whatever. But there's a kind of hesitancy among the unions to just go out there and say, you know, we are with the precarious workers 100%. Mm-hmm. We are H-E-R-E, we are whatever it is, S-E-I-U, we are 100% with the precarious workers. We want to stand with the Amazon workers. You know, Amazon, you got a small strike there. We're going to bring a thousand truckers to march to come and, and support you. Where is that solidarity? You know, that's one. Secondly, in many of the instances in the pandemic where we've seen countries where um, people's organizations have come out and provided mutual aid relief. It was not just small groups. It was trade unions that went out onto the street, set up these kitchens, set up places to wash hands and so on. Why? Because often the unions, the, the trades people who know how to create public sinks, you know, to fix water pipes and all that. Union workers came and built all that stuff for free. Evidence of that right now in around the, in the U.S., trade unions just didn't do anything. You know, you had this big pandemic. Unions could have come out and done public feeding of people, you know, mass feeding. Why? They have these large budgets that, that they have. They have skills. Forget the budgets. You have trained technical people who know how to do these things. You know, you have people in the in the buildings trade. You have people in the restaurants trade who can come out and create, you know, public feeding for people funded by the unions. The unions need to really understand that they have a historical revolutionary role in society. They are not merely this narrow thing to protect wages, which they are doing a a wretched job of doing anyway. Uh, They need to be out there building society, not just, you know, sitting in their offices doing nothing. I don't want to be rude against the union leadership. I'm glad glad you're saying it, but to, to what do you attribute them not doing what you're advocating for? Well, it's it's a sociological thing. It's a long uh, thing one would have to say, but there's just a few points. One is that, well, the U.S. Um, political establishment changed the law and prevented solidarity strikes. You know, so it, mm-hmm. it, you have to actually break the law to come in and say, we're going to go on strike on your behalf. But I'm not even asking for solidarity strikes. If the Starbucks workers are on, on, on a wildcat strike, why can't? The SEIU march down and support them. You don't have to go on strike to support them, but come in your, I guess it's purple jackets. Maybe they've changed the color, but come in your purple, bring your big rat, you know, and put it out there in Mm -hmm. front of the Starbucks. Join in solidarity, build the culture of worker solidarity. That was partly the law change that prevented solidarity strikes. 
I get that. But you don't have to go on strike. Support them openly, vigorously, you know, uh, with with feeling. Not after Amazon has made its thing, then Chris Small suddenly is invited to see the AFL and then invited to the White House. That's ridiculous. What were you doing when they were struggling to build the union? Right. Nothing. You were doing nothing. So, but second, and I think this is important, is that, and I, again, I don't want to be rude about this because I know people in unions work hard to build the capacity of the, but there's a narrowness of thought. Um, I think people just don't see the fact that unions are not there merely to protect your wages or to protect your working conditions. Unions were built in the 19th century. Unions were built with the express purpose of building a humane society. You know, mm-hmm. that's the reason why trade unionism begins. It doesn't begin just for the shop. That happened historically where unions became rooted in shops. Unions start, the, the old unions had the idea of building a world of workers, you know, letting the workers breathe. We've got to return to that attitude. And I'm afraid a lot of the culture of trade unionism is extraordinarily narrow. Uh, it's it's super narrow. You know, you walk into these places and and they're not, there's a, the sense of, of social hospitality just doesn't exist. You know, I've been into yeah. union offices in the United States, feel like an interloper there. You know, you, you feel like you're, 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 you're doing something wrong coming there. You know, it's, it's, it's horrible. Um, just like when you walk into Congress, you feel as if you're like a criminal coming to Congress, you know, <laughs> rather than being well, welcomed especially, in. Especially now post, I mean, it was COVID and then one six that you technically used to be able to just go in. And now you don't even have that technical ability, even if you would have, maybe you would have been put off by the columns and the, you know, the inhospitality of the architecture or something before. Now you literally, you can't do the things that AOC did earlier in her tenure, like invite the public in to have a sit in at Nancy Pelosi's office. COVID has in, in the precautions post one six have given people an excuse to really shut down a lot of what was useful protest activity in the offices of our representatives. And you can see it when, when you're at those like Supreme court protests around abortion rights, et cetera, and you have these tall gates enclosing you and you're in the designated protest area and there's rows of cops all around you. You really do feel the limitation of our so-called free speech. And when I speak to, you know, union organizers, I think you're also right about that. Even the best ones, the, the best ones that I know are like leftists and Bernie bros and all those other kinds of things. When you ask them, you know, you know, why not, let's say, shut down the airlines, uh, you know, over COVID since so much of like the COVID policy is centered around what's going on with travel in these airlines. And you guys are like on the first responders and most so vulnerable in all of these ways. Um, in the government, the airlines did get all of this, uh, money through the CARES Act and they did squander it and they did fire people and force them into retirement, all those kinds of things. I think there's a good faith response from folks that I've spoken to where they really do feel like their primary obligation is to the members of the union and it's not their job to get political. It's not their job to use, you know, flight attendant salaries, you know, and their well-being, their financial well-being to like bring the country to a halt for some bigger political objective. And I completely understand that. You know, I'm not going to obviously tell somebody who's responsible for all these people, hey, fight this fight for me so that I benefit. But it's the same kind of thing you hear from the squad and these other people who say, well, I'm responsive first and foremost to my constituents and my primary goal is to get reelected. Well, if everyone's in that short-term loop, 
then it just seems obvious that nothing ever is going to break. And I don't, you know, I both respect the kind of like humanist response. There's, there's something that is actually very humane about them saying, like, I, I see these people. I talk to them every day. I am beholden to them. I have to protect my constituents. But without, you know, most of us, we don't have a union. There's no alternative. And we feel like our democracy is broken. And I, I don't know what to do about that tension. You know, what does that look like? You know, how did it happen in India that as marginalized as unions were, they still chose to align with all these people who they didn't have a responsibility for? How is it the case in Chile that despite there being a more conservative Catholic culture, that people aren't having these endless debates about, well, when is viability and when is life star and what does the Constitution actually say? They're just getting stuff. I mean, that is like this huge psychic gap that I'm really struggling to close. And I I wonder if you might be able to illuminate. You know, you you remember, I mean, I suppose most children, particularly in Anglophonic world, have read The Lorax, uh, Mm -hmm. such a great, uh, such a great book by Dr. Seuss. Um, You know, when The Lorax appears, The Lorax says, I speak for the trees. And you think, well, why don't the trees speak for themselves? Uh, why do you have to represent, you know, you're representing the tree. You are claiming to speak on behalf of the tree. Who speaks for the many people who don't have an organization, you know, and also who speaks for your own workers? It's not true when somebody says, look, we take our dues from air hostesses. We can't be political, you know. Well, look, the air hostess finishes their shift. Then they have to struggle to get home because there's no public transportation. Um, you're thinking about the air hostess only when they are on the job. You're not mm-hmm. thinking about the air hostess's life. You're not thinking about the fact that the air hostess has kids who can't afford college. Um, because the air hostess's day doesn't end when the working day ends. So unions need to break out of this working day mentality. Um, you know, you want to speak for the trees. You want to speak for the air hostess. Speak for the air hostess fact that there's no public transportation, no public colleges, no public institutions that help the hostess live a life of dignity and decency. So I actually don't have any sympathy for a union organizer when they say, well, you know, we, we get dues from there. So we have to know. Then you're, you're actually only speaking for the shift of the air hostess. You're not speaking for the air hostess, my friend, only for their shift. The air hostess lives, I hope, a life that is greater than their shift. I mean, Mm. You know, the majority of their day is not spoken for. Where is the Lorax for them? You know, and in that sense, I would say I don't have any sympathy for that. I think that's a cop out. Um, That's a way for a union organizer to say, sorry, pals, we're not going to deal with the fact that public institutions have been destroyed. You know, um, what was so, I think, exciting about the Bernie campaign, the 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 most uh a dynamic thing about it, in my opinion, was the call for public education, public higher education in particular. Um, you know, it, it is ridiculous that in a country so rich as the United States, um, you've privatized everything, you know, basically privatized even the right to breathe in, in, in mm-hmm. parts of, of human life. Um, you've privatized the, the ability for people to live, uh, to survive. Uh, we just saw a, a rolling strikes in the UK of transport workers. Mick Lynch, leader of, of, of the RMT, the Transport Workers Union, he put it beautifully on British media. You know, he went on a number of different channels and he said, who's going to deal with us? We're dying here. You know, this is for us a matter of life and death. That's a trade unionist. 
uh, the RMT didn't say, look, we're just fighting for uh, workers. They said we're fighting for England. In fact, uh, Mick Lynch at many points said we, we are actually not going on strike against the English people. We're going on strike against the government. Um, you know, we are with the English people. We're sorry to inconvenience you, but we are not inconveniencing you. The capitalist system is inconveniencing you. We are just happening to pull the plug on one day. You know, you're saying we're unhappy that the trains are not running today. The trains don't run well any day because they've underfinanced trains. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, look at U.S. cities. It's a disgrace to look at the state of public transportation, you know, heavily under under um, under invested. And you have to still pay large amounts of money to use public transportation. I have the view that. Public transportation is already paid for by taxation. You shouldn't have to buy a ticket. You need to get on the the subway in New York. Get on the subway, get off the subway. You don't have mm-hmm. to pay for it. You've already paid for it. Now you're charging me twice for the same thing. That's ridiculous. Yeah. I buy a cup of coffee. I'm not going to pay twice. Once when I mm-hmm. get it from you, once when I finish drinking it. Are you crazy? I've yeah. already paid for the public transportation. You know, you're making me pay again. So this, these, this is what I meant. Earlier, you know, you mentioned I talked about we need a revolutionary attitude. That's because we shouldn't be we should not be scared to say things that are true. You know, one of the things that's true is you you already own your own country. You own the country. You paid for it. You built it. Why are you asking permission to live? Well, I mean, I know we're up at an hour, so I don't want to keep you um, much longer. You've been so generous with your time. It does remind me, however, of some comments I've heard you make about China and how much people attribute its ability to have effective COVID interventions to it being a single party communist state, authoritarian, all these kinds of things. When there was this other aspect of it that had to do with that kind of culture of feeling like you're part of a community and that kind of helpfulness. And I I wonder, you know, when you make these kinds of arguments, you are very confident about using China as an example in a way that I think a lot of people aren't because of the stigma that exists around the Western conception of China as enemy number one or maybe enemy number two, depending on how you rank with Russia these days and um, a, a kind of association between communism and authoritarianism that exists in the West. So I, I wonder why you feel it's so important to emphasize that you are a communist and to continue to point to China as an example of these kinds of things and then how you manage the pushback that I'm sure that you get and that you've alluded to even in the context of this interview. Well, uh, look, the first thing I want to say is I believe that communism is a set of experiments. It's not a, it's not perfection. We're trying to experiment to make the world a better place. We've had different kinds of experiments in the past. Bits of them have succeeded. Look, look, when the Soviet Union was created, they immediately established maternity leave. First country in the world to establish maternity leave. They immediately established the right to abortion. They didn't have to have a debate about mm. this stuff. They just said, look, that's important to human dignity. Um, you know, we're not going to wait to build the capacity of, of people to demand this. You know, maternity leave, that's going to happen. You know, it's uh, and and. In fact, within months of the revolution taking place, they established maternity leave. It's an, it's an incredible, you know, set of lessons for us to learn that c- certain things should not be up for debate, you know, call it authoritarian or whatever. Frankly, they're not up for debate in capitalist societies either. Um, you know, it's not like there's a real debate around issues like, you know, what is a care economy like? 
uh, what is what's the debate around abortion? You just said it. You want to protest. You're in a zoo somewhere, um, you know, <laughs> where one or two cameras come and film you and so on. Anyway, the reason I don't feel scared of the pushback and so on is I'm not a paid agent of anybody. I'm looking at the facts. And here's what the facts tell me. Um, you know, you go to a, a country like like China, you, which I've visited on many occasions. One of the there's a couple of interesting features. One, it's difficult to replicate, but the Chinese society has not been as atomized and, and disrupted as society in, in particularly advanced capitalist countries where, you know, people just don't participate. And you don't need to take my word for it. Uh, Princeton University political scientist some years ago wrote a book called Bowling Alone, Mr. Putnam, where he said, you know, society in the United States is degenerating to such an extent that it's going to have an impact on politics. You know, people are not going to be able to build with each other in their communities and so on. There's a lot of language of community. It really is not existing very much. That was Putnam, not me. He said that. It's interesting in China, um, the general culture of, of, of community building is, is quite present and the trust in institutions is much higher than the United States. So for instance, there's no debate around, you know, vaccines. There's no debate around, you know, whatever it is, the issue of masking. These things, there was no debate. People said, look, the science indicates to us masking is good. We're going to mask. Um, it's, it was the case, same case in Vietnam. We're going to mask. We're going to wash our hands. Science says it. The absolutely belligerent attitude of people in the United States against masking, against basic, simple things, do it for a few weeks, you might be able to stop the transmission of the virus. But no, people are like, I refuse. It's my freedom. It's your freedom to be a jerk. Not in my opinion, you know, not in my book. <laughs> so one is something maybe harder to replicate, which is that there is a kind of antisocial ideological thing that has come with too much free market capitalist thinking, you know, that developed in the West. Secondly, I think that the organizations that were created after the Chinese revolution, particularly neighborhood organizations and so on, play a role, a function. They have a negative side to them. I agree that, you know, there can be a little too much snooping going on. You know, it's it's like when you have a neighborhood watch in the United States, um, there's some person sitting at the head of your street watching you as a teenager run out, call your parents and say, oh, your child has run out. I mean, I don't need that level of snooping, but that's a normal thing that happens. It's a normal negative thing that happens in any kind of association, you know, gossip, um, slander, using people's vulnerabilities for political gain. That kind of thing is not going to be overcome by socialism, frankly. That's a human problem, okay? Well, Humans also we always... have our, our, our Amazon cameras on everybody's doorstep doing Absolutely. it for the, for the benefit of Amazon, but not for the benefit of the community. Exactly. So, I mean, I raised the question. The way you ask the question is a good one. Why do you keep bringing this up? The pain of bringing up is higher. Why do I? Well, because actually it establishes that in some parts of the world, in Kerala, in China, in Cuba as well, you see the fact of how communities operate um, for the benefit of people. It's a, it's a, it's an interesting thing. Years ago, I did a story about a hurricane that hit Puerto Rico and Cuba at the same time. What happened was interesting. Right before the hurricane hit Cuba, everybody knew it was coming. The Committee to Defend the Revolution, which is organized in every village in Hamlet, had electricians, you know, because they live in the community. They went immediately and dislocated the power lines before the hurricane came. So they did this before and then the hurricane came and brought down the power lines, but everything had been shut off. 
When the hurricane went through, they recovered everything. And within two days, the power was back on in Cuba. In Puerto Rico, for almost a year, there was no power. You might remember this because they did, they did, there was no people simply had been disarmed and they were waiting for electricians to come from corporations in the United States. They didn't have the neighborhood capacity to take care of the electrical lines. There's a good distinction. It's a exact parallel. Puerto Rico here, Cuba here. Tell me which, which, which island uh, had its power on faster? It was Cuba. Not because necessarily, you know, it's socialist. They have no, it's because they also have organized their communities with skills and have harnessed those skills to help, um, you know, create a better world. They've organized the community. They are harnessing the skills. In Puerto Rico, there were probably plenty of electricians, but they were not allowed to go and touch the wires because those are owned by corporations. You see, see the problem. I mean, this is why these examples are relevant examples, not. Because, you know, it's China and, and they are self-declared communist or Q. No, it's because it just happens that these are countries where the well-being of people seems to be put on the table ahead of corporations and others. Now, that doesn't mean these things can't be done in the United States. Some of them could be done, but they're not being done. Well, ask the people of Puerto Rico, what would you prefer? Your lights on in two days or no power for a year? Well, I mean, do you think, as you're describing that, I often, during these kinds of conversations, think to myself, what does it look like to organize my community as I sit here in, like, a tall apartment building in Washington, D.C.? You know, what is my community? Like, the, you know, the, the you know, petit bourgeois in my building, you know, the, you know, drug rehab center that I know is a few blocks away. You know, what, what, what does, what does it, what does that even mean? And are Republicans, are conservatives at an advantage for being more geographically distributed in smaller towns and more rural areas where perhaps there is still a more, a more confidence in one's community and more of a feeling of sameness than exists in these hyper dense urban areas where we all kind of rely on our anonymity. Like part of why a lot of people are in cities because there is this sense that you can do what you want and not incur judgment and be anonymous on the street. It's very hard for me to say because every Everybody has to make different decisions in different ways and they best understand their communities. But it's impossible for me to imagine that um, any, that there are some places which are impossible to organize into a community. That, that's, it cannot, it cannot be. Even an apartment building in, in Washington DC will have cause for people to need to come together. You know, there must have been plenty of cause during the pandemic. Well, that's not there now, but even now there must be plenty of cause, you know, for people to need each other and not know that they need each other. I'll give you a simple example. Most people of the middle class background, many people don't live near family members. So they have problems you know, babysitters and all kinds of tensions and crop in. Um, you know, if in a building, if people organize themselves so that they had this thing where, you know, we would get so many hours of babysitting each, each apartment would say, I'll take care of your kids for two hours, go out, eat dinner. I mean, there are simple things that are practical problems, even for the middle class that for which the neither the state nor capital has a solution, but only society does. Um, you know, the, there's a way in which those problems, if they are captured by society, if, if through social organizing, we are able to handle people's real problems. That's what builds trust to take the next step politically. You know, if you go and knock on your neighbor's doors and say, will you vote for this candidate? They never, they don't know who you are. 
You know, they have no trust. It's the same story you told about yeah. Las Vegas. It took mm. a year of work, of sustained work. And why just the year before the election? Why not for life? Why don't we live like that? Why don't we live like we are running for uh, elections? You know, why, or why don't we live like Bernie ran for elections in Las Vegas? Yeah, I mean, I think some of it is a, a funding issue and, or at least a lack of confidence. You know, I think there's a world where if Bernie doesn't shut down his campaign and says this was about a movement, and a lot of people have their criticisms of Bernie for doing this. But if he said this is a movement and we're going to, if you keep donating to me, I'm going to keep funding folks to be on the ground and run these kind of events and do community organizing, and this is a way of life. I frankly think a lot of people would have kept up their $27 donations. Um, but that's, like, to your point, not our attitude in this country for whatever reason. I have a friend who lives in Baltimore who has a dog and has very good relationships with all the people at the dog park. And there's always such lovely conversations that happen. People are from different walks of life, and everyone's together around their dogs. Everyone knows the dog's name. We all say, oh, look, there goes... Bree's mom, yeah, there's a dog named Bree. But there goes, <laughs> there goes Bree's mom, or what Don't have say you. That too loud because my dog here's name is Brisner. So <laughs> Brisner is has jumped up and is wants to join me. Oh, Brisner's more than welcome to join. Oh, because, what a cutie pie! <laughs> yeah, because Brisner um, is it's the same thing, right? You walk with your dog, you get to meet all the dog owners. Right. But here's the thing. I suggested to him, you know, he had to travel. I said, why don't you guys ever coordinate to babysit each other's dogs when you have to go away? I mean, you know, your dogs are compatible. You know who gets along with who. You can match who has a similarly sized dog and all that stuff. And he says, well, then I'd have to like actually be in each other's lives. And that feels like too much intimacy. And I, I think that's the way a lot of people feel. They're They're not willing to you know, there's obvious benefits of being a part of a community. We are socialized to want to keep our privacy and our limits. And I think that, you know, I see some of my friends from various immigrant backgrounds have a different attitude toward these kinds of things. And it does really feel like a, a, a kind of American plight that there is this almost coldness <laughs> toward our fellow man. And I, I think you rightly identify that as a a primary um, obstacle that we need to be tackling on the left. I appreciate you going over time and being so generous with me and spending so much time chatting today. We could go on and on and on. And I hope you will come back to the podcast because I think we have a lot of China questions that I think folks would like to get answered. But can you tell our audience where to find more of you and your work? Well, certainly. And by the way, it was a great pleasure to, to speak with you. Um, it's really engaging and interesting. Um, well, um, they can go to the website of the Institute I direct, which is thetricontinental.org. Also, I'm, um, I have a book coming, uh, as you said, two of them, one, uh, a long interview about the state of the world with Frank Barat called Struggle Makes Us Human. And the other is a book with Chomsky that I'm super excited for people to read because there are sections we're talking about the Iraq war and so on. And, you know, it was interesting because I reported some of these wars and Noam sat in his office in DC and also, of course, traveled to Turkey and so on. But, you know, it, there's an interesting way in which we approach these things slightly differently. And I hope people will read that book and really think seriously about the malignancy of U.S. power as it's uh, used overseas. Yeah, I mean, I think there'll be quite an appetite for it, not just on the left, but frankly, I've been both heartened and a little concerned about the rise of anti-intervention on the right, heartened for obvious reasons, concerned because 
if liberals don't respond in kind, then there's only one avenue for folks who prioritize that as a political issue. And I think it is driving a lot of folks rightward in a way that is not for the broader benefit. But thank you so much. I think we're all looking forward to that. And for listeners, as always, you know that this is a podcast that comes out twice a week to get our premium episodes that drop on Monday. You can subscribe at patreon.com slash bad faith podcast. But of course, enjoy our free Thursday episodes and enjoy us the evening after the podcast launches on Mondays and Thursdays over at call in to continue the conversation. As always, take care of yourself and keep the faith. Hey, YouTube. Thanks for watching. Just a reminder that this is a podcast. You can catch an extra premium episode every Monday for $5 a month at patreon.com slash bad faith podcast. That's patreon.com slash bad faith podcast for $5 a month, an extra episode every week. Additionally, please do consider liking this video, subscribing to this channel. It helps us out. It helps independent media beat the algorithm. We appreciate you. And as always, keep the faith.